Hello, and welcome to the All Souls Forum. My name is Bill Pierce, and I'm the programmer and producer of the All Souls Forum. I'm here today because I think that this program deserves your financial support. The All Souls Forum offers a platform for the discussion of significant issues. Guest speakers typically focus on local and national issues of social justice, political, moral, educational, or artistic significance. This is a locally produced program, and we think it is important because of what it adds to our mission. That is, it provides our listeners with a viewpoint that may be overlooked, suppressed, or underrepresented on corporate or even public radio stations. Free Speech Week is October 17th through 23rd this year. This national event recognizes free speech and press in the United States. And KKFI is having our pledge drive during Free Speech Week. If free speech is important to you, donating to KKFI is an effective way to demonstrate your commitment. Good information comes at a cost. We would really appreciate your support of this program. You can call now at 1-888-931-0901, or if you prefer, you can donate online at www.kkfi.org and click the Donate button. That's 1-888-931-0901 to call in your donation, or www.kkfi.org to donate online. And now, here is this week's edition of the All Souls Forum. Good morning. I'm Craig Lubo, and I'm a member of the Forum Committee. It helps to organize these discussions. Um, and I want to welcome you today. Today, we have um, Alan Rothstein is our speaker, and he is a professor at UMKC Law School and a constitutional expert, and he's going to be talking about pretty much how do we reform the court, what kind of structural reform we have to make it more in sync with basically the American public and reality. Well, welcome, Alan. Thank you. I appreciate the uh, invitation to be here. It's nice to talk about these issues, even if they are very difficult ones that d don't have easy answers, for sure. Um, certainly, the Supreme Court has been in the news a lot lately. Everyone is aware of that. And there's a lot of controversy surrounding the Supreme Court. There always is, to some extent, of course. The Supreme Court is always making important decisions about new issues. And uh, it's one of the nice things about teaching constitutional law. There are some, as I do, there are some subjects where nothing really changes. You know, in property law, you could go many years and there's, you know, you could <laughs> go back a century and it's probably not that different than it is today. But constitutional law, there's always something new coming along every year. But more recently, uh, it's not just that there's new, interesting new issues coming along with new decisions being made. The Supreme Court is increasingly willing to reconsider things that seemed settled in the past. And of course, it is, I think, impossible to talk about these issues without doing so in terms that may seem political or partisan. Um, you just inevitably have to talk about things in terms of, you know, liberal or conservative or democratic and Republican. And so I'll talk about it in that way today. Not that I'm necessarily trying to be overly political about it, but it's just kind of the inescapable reality, I think, that those are the, those are the terms in which this discussion occurs. 
um, the Supreme Court has become more conservative in recent years. And so it is primarily people more on the liberal or democratic side of things who are particularly frustrated or concerned about that. But I would say it's something that at least to some extent could concern everyone. It is more obvious why a more liberal progressive person might be concerned about the Supreme Court. They would be concerned about the particular decisions that are being made and about the effects that they will have on people uh, throughout the country. But even someone who is very conservative, if they were pleased with the decisions the Supreme Court was making and ag agreed with them, uh, they might nevertheless be concerned in a couple of ways. One is that they might simply be concerned that the reaction to the Supreme Court's decisions and the fact that they're overruling uh, prior cases might undermine the support for the Supreme Court in the eyes of many other people. It might undermine the Supreme Court's legitimacy. In other words, even if you say, well, I like what they're doing, I, it does worry me that so many other people might be unhappy about it and might lose respect for the Supreme Court and its authority. People also might be concerned about the potential political backlash. If you were a conservative Republican, even, even if you were, again, a big supporter of the, the, the particular substance of what the Supreme Court is deciding, you might say, say well, I still worry that it may hurt uh, you know, my side in future elections. And I think we see a little bit of that. There's at least some thought that the midterm elections coming up next month, the Democrats might at least benefit to some extent uh, from controversy over the Supreme Court. One also, regardless of one's views, one might be concerned about the destabilizing effect of overruling prior decisions. You know, there's a reason why courts in general prefer to stick to existing law. You don't want to be flipping it back and forth all the time. It's just harder for people to know what the law is and to have faith in it, faith in it that it really makes sense. So there are these reasons why one could be concerned. I'll try to do a couple things today. One is I'm going to start by just sort of recapping a little bit about how we got to where we are, sort of set the stage for this. Uh, and then I'll talk about some reforms that, that could be on the table. And I'll do so. I'm, I like history. It's one of the reasons I like teaching constitutional law. So I'll kind of do it through the lens of history, talk about a couple times over the past century when the Supreme Court was also under fire and the subject of a lot of controversy. And I'll talk about some you know, ideas that uh, occurred in those eras for what to do about the Supreme Court and then how it sort of played out and what that might tell us about you know, the current day and what could occur. So again, just to sort of set the stage about what has happened with the Supreme Court, again, it's obviously tipped in a more conservative direction than it, than it was before. And one of the things that's remarkable about that is that for so long before this, before just the last couple of years, the overall ideological balance of the Supreme Court was remarkably stable. Justices come and go and issues come and go. But the Supreme Court for 30 or 40 years was really uh, just extremely stable in its overall balance. In other words, what you essentially had for all those years was there were always three or four justices who were reliably liberals. You had people like uh, Ruth Ginsburg or Stephen Breyer, for example, who were, you know, generally on the liberal side of things. And on the other side, you had three or four justices who were pretty consistently conservative. People like Justice Scalia, uh, Clarence Thomas, William Rehnquist, pretty reliably conservative people. Once in a while, everybody departs from their expectations, but it was pretty steadily that way. And then in the middle, you had one or two judges who were the once really deciding everything, to be honest, because they were the, the crucial votes. 
right? The Supreme Court has nine members usually. And so uh, the fifth one, whoever's the fifth one in the middle is really crucial, right? This, this, you could call this person sort of the swing voter, or, or maybe I'll sometimes use the term, they're, they're really the median justice. They're the fifth one, the middle one, and they're the one you need to form a majority. And so whichever way they go, they're likely, it's amazing how some of the justices are almost always in the majority if they're in that kind of situation, because they could go with the liberals and be in the majority, but if they go with the conservatives, then that will be the majority. And so for years, the, the median justice or the, the crucial fifth vote in the middle, the swing vote, was a moderately conservative Republican, essentially. For many years, it was uh, Sandra Day O'Connor who uh, is, uh, was a justice who was, you know, she was a Republican. She'd been a Republican legislator she, uh, at the state level. She uh, was certainly uh, more on the Republican side of things, but again, moderately conservative, but didn't have like a big extreme ideological agenda. She's very careful about the details of the cases and, and you know, went with each side on, on at least some things. When she retired, the median justice became Anthony Kennedy. So people probably can kind of remember those years that there were 10, 15 years where he was the Supreme Court justice who really got to decide everything. And the, and the lawyers knew it, the parties knew it. They would come into court and just argue to Anthony Kennedy, essentially, because they knew there were four who were already on their side, one way or the other, four who were not persuadable, probably. And so you just, you know, you just pander to Anthony Kennedy and try to convince him to go your way. And he was, again, kind of a swing. He was a, a certainly a cons- overall a conservative person and from a Republican background. But on some issues, he, you know, he, he, he believed he was very idealistic, believed very much in, in the idea of liberty. And sometimes that might go in a liberal direction or, or a more conservative one. And so for many years, that was sort of the situation. There was this balance of four to four with, you know, one person usually who was sort of drifting there in the middle. So you got a lot of five to four decisions one way or the other. And one of the remarkable things about it was um, some political scientists have even sort of done studies with data and, and that sort of thing to try to, and modeling to try to confirm this. But they're really just telling us something that we could have already sort of see, which was that it meant that the median Supreme Court justice was very close to the median American person. They argue that based on survey data and the decisions that the Supreme Court made, that where, where Justice O'Connor was, where Justice Kennedy was as, as the median justice, almost fit exactly the views of just the average middle American person. Pretty, you know, middle of the road and moderate, and maybe some liberal views on some things and conservative on others. Part of the reason for this tremendous stability over all those years was that Although there were justices, you know, coming and going, there was a a period where it always seemed to be that justices were just replacing someone who was already of the same point of view. And like, for example, Bill Clinton got to put two people on the Supreme Court, but it happened to be filling two vacancies left by liberal justices. So he got to put new liberal justices in their places. Uh, Justice uh, uh, President George uh, W. Bush also got to appoint two justices, and it was two. more conservative justices, he replaced with two conservatives. Same for Barack Obama. He got two uh, openings to fill, and they were liberals, and he appointed new liberals to replace them. So you had this sort of remarkable stability in that sense. That uh, situation uh, departed from that uh, pattern about five, six, six and a half years ago, I guess it was, when Justice Antonin Scalia uh, unexpectedly passed away back in February of 2016. And it happened while uh, the president was Barack Obama, who was a Democrat. So there was the opportunity for a seat to flip for the really sincerely flip for the first time in a long time. 
And we know what happened with that, that Obama nominated Merrick Garland to be the, the Supreme Court justice, but the Senate did not move forward with uh, considering the nomination. They didn't have any proceedings on it. And so the nomination uh, just sort of lingered uh, until the next election. And uh, at that point, um, uh, uh, President uh, Donald Trump became the president in 2016, as we know, and he wound up with three opportunities to appoint people to the Supreme Court. And so he got to fill that seat left by Justice uh, uh, Scalia's death. Uh, he appointed uh, Neil Gorsuch. And then he was able to uh, help persuade Anthony Kennedy, again, the key swing justice, to retire and was able to uh, get Brett Kavanaugh confirmed to that seat. And then uh, Ruth Ginsburg, as we remember, uh, passed away in September of 2020. And uh, President Trump quickly nominated Amy Comey Barrett to be the the next justice to join the Supreme Court. So that one was a really crucial one because that was definitely a switch from a very liberal person, Ginsburg, to a very conservative person, Barrett. And so at this point, the Supreme Court has a, you know, a six to three majority of conservatives. And so that's sort of where we are at now. One way to look at it, again, the, those political scientists would sort of say, we've gone from a situation where the median justice was aligned with the average American to a situation where the median justice is now aligned with the average Republican, the average member of the Republican Party. Uh, the, the median justice now, you'd say, is probably um, maybe Brett Kavanaugh or maybe John Roberts, something like that. Pro probably Brett Kavanaugh, though. He's the fifth one. He's got four people more conservative than him and then four people to his left. And he is not a real centrist person. I mean, he's um, more toward the center than some others, but he's he's a, he's a Republican. He's a, he sort of is a traditional uh, Republican. So we're, one, one way to put it is again the the middle justice now is is a very traditional, consistent, reliable Republican person, which means that about three fourths of Americans uh, are are not as conservative as the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court is more conservative than about three quarters of Americans, and we're starting to see how this plays out. Uh, the decision uh, to overrule Roe versus Wade is the one that certainly has gotten the most attention by far. But, you know, the Supreme Court is making decisions about other things. They have uh, made a decision last year that strengthened uh, Second Amendment rights. Uh, they've made a lot of important decisions already about religion, about the free exercise rights that people have, and about the separation of church and state. Uh, they've made important decisions about voting rights. Uh, they've made important decisions about the authority of government to deal with things like the COVID pandemic, and they have made and will continue to make very important decisions about the authority of government agencies, about uh, organizations like the Environmental Protection Agency, and what authority they have to deal with major issues like, in that case, uh, climate change and that sort of thing. So it is having an effect on perception of the Supreme Court. Uh, you've probably seen news stories, as I have, about how public support for the Supreme Court is down. Uh, so, and the headlines will often say, you know, it's going down to historic low numbers. And, you know, it has dropped for sure. Ten, it, it was fairly steady for a long time. It would go up and down to some extent. But for the past 10 or 15 years, typically about 60% of people in polls would say that they supported the job the Supreme Court was doing. And maybe 30% would say they, they are opposed to the or don't approve of the Supreme Court. So you could sort of say they had sort of like a plus 30 positive rating. Their approval was like 30 points higher than their disapproval. And depending on the survey, they're now down into negative territory. It depends on which survey you look at, but they're down to, you know, negative five, negative 10, negative 15, something like that. And certainly the 
information from those surveys indicates that they've fallen the most with, as you would expect, with Democrats and independents uh, and, and less so with Republicans. One could say, well, who cares? You know, who cares about the Supreme Court and whether or not they're popular? From the judge's perspective, I mean, they don't have to run for reelection. And they don't really depend on the support of people. They're not trying to get campaign contributions or, you know, they're not depending on ratings or something like that. And so you could say, well, what do they really care? They can just, they could just sort of take the approach of, look, we're going to do whatever we want and we don't care what anybody thinks. We'll do what we think is right. Uh, but it, it seems clear, though, that at least to some extent, the, um, so, at least some of the justices care what people think of them. Often it's said that John, John Roberts doesn't talk a lot about this explicitly, the Chief Justice John Roberts, but from the reporting that you hear it may, from people who work with him and know him, it makes it sound like he does, as Chief Justice, has a lot of concern about the way the court is perceived. And he's, he's careful about that and wants to preserve its institutional legitimacy. And I think with good reason, because in the short run, yeah, the Supreme Court could sort of defy the consensus of the American people and just do what it wants to do and not care about the perception. But in the long run, it really does matter. In the long run, the Supreme Court would eventually, I think, pay some kind of price if uh, they were to disregard uh, how they are perceived. I don't think it's sustainable in the long run. Eventually, people would say, why are, we why are we accepting this? Why are we listening to them? So the question is, what could happen? What could happen in the long run? How could the American people push back against the Supreme Court? And as I said on that, I'll sort of turn to history a little bit for insight. One of the key moments in American constitutional history over the past century was in the mid-1930s in the midst of the Great Depression. The American people wanted the government to do more to try to turn that crisis around, do, some, do things to get it, you know, and unemployment was 25%. The banks were failing. Prices were dropping. Uh, it was people were losing their businesses and their farms to, to mortgage foreclosures. People wanted action. Uh, and the Supreme Court was standing in the way. They were uh, invalidating many measures that state governments and the federal government under President Roosevelt were attempting to do. Uh, and they had you know, a number of different constitutional objections, but it basically boiled down to saying, I don't think the government has the authority to intervene so much in economic matters. It's interfering with people's contract rights and it's exceeding the powers of the national government. Uh, and it was a very frustrating situation for President Roosevelt and his allies. The Supreme Court, again, was a little bit like it, like it has been recently. It had four liberals who were basically supporters of Roosevelt and the New Deal. It had four justices who were the other direction. They were four older gentlemen known as the Four Horsemen, as in those, they were nicknamed that by the, by the newspapers, as in the Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse, like war and death and pestilence and whatever the other four horsemen of the apocalypse are. And I don't know if they relish that nickname or not, but that was sort of the idea they had. These were hardcore people who had a very conservative agenda, limited government, uh, laissez-faire approach to economic matters and that sort of thing. And we're very dug in on this. And then there was one poor guy stuck in the middle. This guy, Owen Roberts, seemed like an earnest attorney from Philadelphia trying to do good. Uh, and he was just kind of stuck in the middle and was kind of swinging back and forth, really, truly wavering between you know, the two sides of this uh, big dispute. At some point, Roosevelt got increasingly frustrated with the situation. He won re-election in uh, 1936 for his second term by a landslide. I mean, he lost two states and won all of the other, I guess, there were, I was going to say 48, but I guess there were only 46 at that time. But he won all the rest of the states, huge landslide. And he felt like he then had a mandate, strong mandate from the American people to do something about this. 
And yet the Supreme Court seems to be continuing to, to rule against him. So a couple things that were considered. And again, you could think about how these might play out today. One possibility is to amend the Constitution. If you don't like what the Supreme Court is deciding, that is always one possibility. Uh, and they talked about a lot of possible amendments. Some of them would have been specific amendments to address a, a particular point of law. A particular interpretation of the Constitution could be overruled through an amendment. So they could say, for example, the, the Congress has the power to regulate uh, manufacturing and mining and uh, you know agriculture, stuff like that, and not debate the commerce power so much. Or say, you know, specific laws like having a minimum wage law is is valid and constitutional. It does not infringe upon people's contract rights. So you could have sort of specific amendments like that. They also thought about more general amendments that would reform what the Supreme Court can do. For example, one of the proposals was to say that uh, the Supreme Court, a bare majority of the Supreme Court, like five to four, would no longer be enough to strike down an act of Congress. You would need some larger number. They talked about perhaps making it seven to two. You would need a seven to two vote if you're going to exercise the power of you could you could make other decisions with five to four, like interpreting a statute or something. But if you're going to invoke this significant power to of judicial review to invalidate an act of Congress of one of one of the other branches of government, you would then need it to be seven to two. They also talked about going even further and just getting rid of the idea of judicial review. Judicial review is this this concept that's existed since Marbury versus Madison in 1803, that the Supreme Court can strike things down as unconstitutional. They thought about getting rid of that. They thought about, let's pass an amendment that says, no, you can't strike things down as unconstitutional. That would have been a pretty dramatic move. So they thought about all of those things. It is very hard to amend the Constitution, though. You need uh, more than just you know a majority of the nation to be supporting it. You need to get two-thirds of each House of Congress uh, which Roosevelt actually had. I mean, the Democrats had 70, 75 percent of each House of Congress, uh, but you still need to keep them in line and get them to vote for it. And then you need three-fourths of the states, three-fourths of the states to ratify the proposed amendment. So it's tough. You need something that there's really a strong consensus on. They thought about, well, if we, if we can't get amendments through, and, and, and if it just is that going to take, that's going to take a long time and, and be difficult, maybe we could do certain things by just passing legislation. That's easier to do than amending the Constitution. And nor normally you can't just pass a statute and overrule a constitutional decision because the Constitution will just nullify the statute. Uh, but they said, hey, there, maybe there are some ways in which we could do this. One possibility was they said we could uh, perhaps pass a statute rather than trying to overturn a specific decision. Let's remove the Supreme Court's jurisdiction or all of the federal court's jurisdiction to even hear a certain kind of case. The, and you may wonder, well, can they really do that? Could Congress pass a law that says the Supreme Court's not allowed to decide certain issues? Maybe. The, the, the Supreme Court's authority is spelled out in Article 3 of the Constitution, and it says that they'll be able to hear certain kinds of cases. It, sa it says that we'll have a Supreme Court, and it says we will have other lower courts uh, as Congress may from time to time establish. So it doesn't really guarantee that we'll have anything other than the Supreme Court. So the district courts or the courts of appeal are optional. And the idea is Congress could either just get rid of them or limit what they can do. And then the, the Constitution does talk about some things that the Supreme Court can decide. But under its appellate jurisdiction, it says that it is subject to such exceptions and such regulations as Congress may make. So that's kind of debatable what that means. But one could interpret that to mean Congress can make exceptions to the Supreme Court's appellate jurisdiction and say, you're no longer allowed to make, you don't, you don't have jurisdiction anymore to decide cases about and name your issue. Like you can, you can know they could have passed a measure that said Supreme Court can no longer 
make decisions about the constitutionality of the New Deal programs, essentially. And they would have no longer been within the Supreme Court's jurisdiction. Now, whether you can really do that is debatable. There's, you know, a mountain of law review articles debating it, and it hasn't been done very much. So there's not a lot of clear authority one way or the other. But it's at least conceivable that you could strip the Supreme Court's jurisdiction in that way. President Roosevelt decided to go in another direction, though. As you may know, he instead made a dramatic announcement of a proposal for increasing the size of the Supreme Court. He uh, gave a national radio address about this, and he essentially said, you know, the problem is a lot of the, it's not just that the justices on the Supreme Court are wrong and that they disagree with me, it's that their, their thinking is obsolete. It's out of date. He said that it was, they were using horse and buggy era legal thinking in a new era when that was, you know, horse and buggies were, were, were not the new thing, obviously. So he proposed that... Um, if a Supreme Court justice, once they reach the age of 70, they would basically be expected to retire and they would receive a pension and that, and that sort of thing. And the hope was that they would just agree that it was time to retire. If they did not do so, then I think within six months after they turned the age of 70, the president would then have the authority to appoint a new justice to serve, essentially to serve alongside them in tandem with them. They wouldn't be forced off the court, but there'd be a new person essentially like sitting right next to them who could basically cancel out their vote. Uh, and so uh, it would have meant, for example, at that time, uh, I think six of the Supreme Court justices were over the age of 70. And so if they, they would either retire and Roosevelt would get to appoint new people, or if they chose not to retire, Roosevelt would have the opportunity to appoint up to six new justices, increasing the size of the Supreme Court to 15. And with those six, who I'm sure he picked people friendly to his point of view, and then the you know, three or four liberals who were already there voting with him, he'd have a majority and he'd be able to have his way on things. So uh, this, this, you might wonder, well, could they do that? Would that require a constitutional amendment? And the answer was no, this could be done just by Congress because this, the Constitution doesn't say how many Supreme Court justices we will have. Uh, it just says that we'll have a Supreme Court. And so the number of justices had fluctuated to some extent over the years. There had been as few as six and as many as 10. Uh, it had been at nine for quite a long time. I think since shortly after the Civil War, it had been at nine and, and so for, for quite a long time. But there was nothing that said you could, Congress could not pass a law that would change the number. Some people uh, supported this proposal. Big supporters of Roosevelt thought it would be a good idea. Some people were opposed to it. Some who were Republicans, but also some who were Democrats, thought that this was a bad way to go about addressing the problem. And I, I guess there could be a lot of objections to this. You, you might think about the pros and cons of it and how it might play out today. Certainly one objection, though, would be the, cons the fear of retaliation. You, you hear this expressed a lot, that what, what if, if one side were to expand the Supreme Court to get a majority that would vote their way, well, what happens the next time the other party is in a position to do the same thing? You know, they will then expand the Supreme Court and we'll have a cycle of retaliation back and forth. And soon the Supreme Court will have, you know, dozens and dozens of members. And it, it seems like it would not be a, a good thing in that sense. The other concern is, would, would this undermine the legitimacy of the Supreme Court? Would it reveal too much to people that, gee, you know, I thought constitutional law had some actual content. Now I realize it's just a matter of how many people are on your team on the court. It's just the judges. If you can appoint more of them, you'll get your way. And it, it just makes it all seem very political. And, and maybe it is, but it would reveal that, I think, to everyone. And, and people might say to themselves, why am I even, why do we even have this? If it's just this political thing that is an indirect result of who controls Congress and the White House, 
why don't we just get rid of it and we'll just let Congress and the White House fight about things and at least we get to vote for them directly. So, uh, so the, the thing was, was supported by some people and not by others. It ultimately was unsuccessful in the sense that it never passed. Con it got held up in Congress and they just never really got around to, uh, to, to it one way or the other. Uh, it was successful perhaps in, or at least is some people see it as having a been success in, in the sense that Roosevelt ultimately got his way with the Supreme Court. They started ruling in favor of all his New Deal programs. Within a couple of years, their opposition to him collapsed completely, and they were upholding anything and everything that governments were trying to do to deal with the economy. And there were a couple of reasons for that. One was one of the, those four horsemen who had opposed Roosevelt did retire in 1937 giving Roosevelt a chance to appoint someone new, and then more retirements followed. And so that was a part of it. But in addition, it was seen that perhaps Roosevelt had warned or intimidated the Supreme Court into uh, shifting its position and supporting him. And this became known, again, the newspapers make up clever names for things, and they called this the switch in time that saved nine, meaning that the Supreme Court had uh, you know, I could vote for some of these things for you, Roosevelt, if you don't go forward with that. They did not want the Supreme Court to be expanded. And the notion is that Owen Roberts, that swing voter in particular, sort of gave in. It's debatable whether that's really true. Historians, once the, it was kind of all secret at the time what the Supreme Court was doing. But in later years, when historians dig into it, they argue that it was sort of moving that way already. And so the Supreme Court was going to drift in Roosevelt's direction anyway. And so uh, perhaps the, the court packing didn't have quite as dramatic of an impact as it might have seemed at the time, but nevertheless. The other historical episode that I think uh, might shed light on this is in the 1950s and 1960s, you had uh, Earl Warren was the chief justice of the Supreme Court. It was the Warren Court era, and they made a lot of important decisions in a liberal direction. The Perhaps the most famous uh, is the Brown versus Board of Education decision and the other cases about racial uh, segregation. Those decisions obviously were extremely unpopular in the South. Later, uh, as you get into the late 60s and early 70s, they were making other decisions about busing, for example, as a remedy for segregation that were controversial throughout the entire country. But they were making decisions about other things as well. One of the ones that was really a hot button issue at the time, and I don't, maybe we don't think about it quite as much today, was the decisions about the rights of accused criminals. Uh, they made decisions in cases like Miranda. People remember, have heard of the Miranda warnings, how you have to warn people when the police uh, question them, you have to warn them that they have a right to remain silent and a right to have a lawyer. And the really controversial part of it is not just that you have to give those warnings, but if you don't, or if you do a search without having a proper search warrant, the evidence would be thrown out. It would be excluded from being used. And this was, you know, extremely controversial and unpopular with a lot of people at the time. The idea was, oh, the judges are just letting, letting criminals go on technicalities. So there was opposition to the court in that era, and it took a couple forms. One of them was attempts to have outright defiance of the Supreme Court's decisions. In the South, with respect to segregation, people can probably remember the images of what happened at like Little Rock High School, for example. The governor of Arkansas, Orville Faubus, basically just said, we are not going to comply with court orders to, to uh, desegregate this school. He called in the Arkansas National Guard to prevent that from happening. He was stopped from doing The Supreme Court said, you can't do that. But what really stopped him was President Eisenhower. President Eisenhower called in the 101st Airborne Division of the U.S. Army. And as I tell my students, you know, you always think, oh, these legal issues will be, you know, decided by who has the better argument. But sometimes 
when you really come down to it, they're decided by who has the bigger army. And Eisenhower had a bigger army than the governor of Arkansas, and Eisenhower was willing to back up the Supreme Court and to ensure that court decisions about, uh, about integration were enforced. So that was not a good tactic, and it wouldn't be one that I'd recommend to anybody today to just have lawlessness or try to defy the defy the, the the Supreme Court's decisions. Another response, though, was to call for the impeachment of the justices, in particular Earl Warren. There were billboards in the South that said, impeach Earl Warren. Some of them, I think, were by the John Birch Society, which was a pretty extreme organization. But there was sentiment out there from others who would have surely liked to see uh, people like Earl Warren be impeached. So would that really be an option, though? And you may think to yourself, I mean, could we start impeaching justices today? And you may think, well, I mean, don't they have to engage in some kind of misconduct to be impeached? Don't, wouldn't they have to done some kind of, done something wrong? It's hard to say. The Constitution says that, uh, that um, top officials, including the Supreme Court justices, can be impeached for bribery. It's pretty clear what that means. Tr- treason. That's also pretty well defined by law. But the last part is other high crimes or misdemeanors. And that part is pretty debatable what that means. Again, lots of law review articles get written, keeps professors busy writing about that. The, I think there's a consensus that, you know, looking back at English history, where that term came from, high crimes and misdemeanors, the high, the high part refers to people in positions of authority. It was, they were thinking of like political corruption and those kinds of crimes that could be committed by a, a, a top a government official, as opposed to just a common person who that would really be a crime that would be relevant for them. But then it's sort of debatable. I mean, what would, if you just think that somebody's making unconstitutional decisions that, that misinterpret the constitution, is that a high crime or misdemeanor? Who knows? It, uh, you know, and, and if, and if they were to make a decision that, uh, if, if they were to impeach somebody on that kind of grounds, you know, just basically because you disagree with their decisions. One interesting question is, would the Supreme Court then be able to review that impeachment? Would they be able to interpret the power of impeachment and perhaps say, nope, that impeachment is invalid? No, nobody knows. It, perhaps they should not be able to do that because if impeachment is one of the checks and balances on the court, then maybe you don't want the court to be able to control the use of that power. But who knows? It's debatable. Back in the early 1970s, I remember there was a time when uh, they were thinking about impeaching William O. Douglas, who was a Supreme Court justice. He hadn't really, I mean, he hadn't been accepting bribes or anything like that. He was just, he was kind of a maverick, unconventional, radical kind of a guy, and some it, it bothered some people. And uh, so they were thinking about impeaching him, and somebody was talking to Gerald Ford, who at that time was serving in, in Congress. And they said, well, what does it mean? What does high crimes and misdemeanors mean? How do you, you know, what is that? And he said, it means whatever people in Congress think it means. Meaning his view, at least, was you can impeach somebody for whatever, whatever you feel like. The difficulty, as you know, though, is it's easier to impeach someone than it is to remove them from office. To impeach someone, you only need a majority of the House of Representatives, but then to remove them from office, you need two-thirds of the Senate. And in this very divided environment, it would be pretty tough to get two-thirds of the Senate probably to impeach a Supreme Court justice. There was also a lot of talk in that era about, again, amending the Constitution in various ways. You could have an amendment, for example, that uh, says overrules the Supreme Court's decisions about prayer in school, for example. You could say that organized prayer in public school would be allowed. Uh, You could also have statutes that would strip or eliminate the Supreme Court's jurisdiction. There were hundreds of bills introduced over the years in Congress that would have done that to basically strip the Warren Court of jurisdiction over some things. But they didn't pass. It's very rare that anything like that got passed. So I would say there was really only sort of one way in which the resistance to the Warren Court's 
decisions was really successful. And that was, you could argue, was politically. That one response to it was simply that um, conservatives were motivated by it and they made it an, a political issue and they campaigned on it. And, uh, and to some extent, you know, there's, you could, there are many factors in terms of who wins elections, but you could argue that this was one of them. Richard Nixon uh, got elected president in 1968 in part because he ran on a platform of law and order. And he said, you know, those judges, again, they're letting criminals go free. We've got riots and protests and we need to crack down. We need conservative Supreme Court justices. And so he was successful in being elected on that. And uh, he, when uh, Reagan got elected in 1980 and, and George H.W. Bush after him, one of the, among many other issues, one of the issues was sort of, again, a part of their conservative platform was we'll appoint judges who will be, uh, you know, strict constructionists about the Constitution and who will take more conservative positions. So they sort of campaigned on that and they were very organized about it. The Republican Party and allied organizations like the Federalist Society really put a focus on cultivating potential judges who would be conservative and getting them nominated and getting them on the bench. So circling sort of back to where we are today, uh, does this background sort of tell us anything about what measures might be taken today? I think the bottom line is there's no quick, easy fix to how to fix the Supreme Court. It's there are things that can be done, but there's no sort of no, no magic way to get around the Supreme Court. Amendments to the Constitution would be very tough to pass this day the, to today. The country's so divided. How are you going to get two thirds of Congress to agree on anything important? or three-fourths of the states. You could try to enact statutes, but again, there's the difficulties of enacting any significant legislation these days. You have the problem of filibusters in the Senate, meaning you need to get up to 60, 60 votes to overcome that. Um, even if you were to get rid of that, as is sometimes suggested, you have the problem that even if the Democratic Party had a small majority, as they do now, you need all of them to be willing to do something, and there's usually... You know, there's the Joe Manchin or the Kirsten Sinema or somebody who's not going to be on board for something that they see as being too aggressive or too uh, controversial, like packing the Supreme Court, right? It's been talked about in recent years, but you don't have enough support within the Democrats in the Senate to be able to really do that. Another possibility that I think might be, at least the one that I like the best, would be I, I think it would make a lot of sense to have term limits for people on the Supreme Court. They, they, just didn't, why did, would they, why would they, we gave them this idea of life tenure and the, during life or good behavior, they can stay on there as long as they want. And I understand the reason you don't want them, you, you want them, you want to have judicial independence. You want them to be able to make decisions. You don't want them coming up for reelection, for example. Uh, but on the other hand, does it really make sense for them to just serve forever? You could, other people have proposed ideas where, for example, you could have them each serve 18 years. That seems like a good long career on the Supreme Court. They're, since they're, if we if we leave it at nine of them, they could eat. We could have a, an opening every two years, and it would have a number of benefits. I think number one, there would be less incentive for presidents to appoint increasingly younger people. It's nice to get the benefit of wisdom of of people who have had a long career as a lawyer and a judge. So rather than being tempted to think, well, I could put this person on there who's you know ten, twenty years younger, there'd be less incentive to do that. There'd be less incentive for the justices to stay on the job and to try to strategically time their exit so that they're leaving when the right, you know, party is in the White House. Uh, it also, again, just would create, I think, more, uh, more expectations, le less randomness. You know, Jimmy Carter didn't get to put anyone on the Supreme Court and some other president might get to put, you know, more people. Uh, Donald Trump got to do three and there's a certain sort of randomness to that. 
Uh, and you may wonder, well, could we do that? Would we need a constitutional amendment to do that? We might. Uh, it might be possible to do it through um, a statute simply because the Constitution doesn't uh, specify if, if we were to come up with some sort of clever mechanism where they wouldn't be fired from their job, but maybe would be shifted to be some other kind of judge, maybe it would be a permissible thing. So I'm going to wrap up right here, just a few seconds, if that's right. My, I guess what I would say is my best hope would be that people can, um, if you can't get around the Supreme Court on the larger level, you look for ways, smaller ways in your life to be able to do it. You know, if you, if you support reproductive rights, you look at ways to address that. If you support immigrants, you look at ways to help them. If you if they get rid of affirmative action, you look for ways in your life to promote diversity and inclusion in the small ways that you can. And maybe to some extent, that's the best that people can do is to try to push back in those smaller ways at the grassroots level and bide their time until the future when the pendulum ultimately swings back. And maybe eventually people can't stay on the Supreme Court forever. So eventually things will shift back the other way. All right. Well, thank you very much. It looks like I should pause here. And Thank you, uh, Professor Rostin. Next, we're going to move into the formal Q&A. Anybody have some questions? Craig Volland? It seems to me we have essentially a minority rule situation at the moment. And if you go back from what you were saying, uh, that started when Obama had an opportunity to appoint a judge. But because of the Senate being the elected two senators for every state, no matter how many people they have, isn't the real problem here the Senate, the way it is uh, selected? I think that's a good question and a, a very fair point. I, I, I do worry that, you know, the Constitution, when they created it, they made a number of different compromises. They didn't choose to make it uh, a purely, they didn't choose to make it as purely democratic as they could have. And those, in some ways, those are probably good choices. I mean, so we wind up with institutions like the Senate having um, equal representation of all the states. And that has become even more dramatically disproportionate than it would have been hundreds of years ago. I mean, the size now of California compared to the, the lower population states is you know, way beyond uh, the, a multiple of what it would have been in the past. You wind up with institutions like the Electoral College so that we can wind up with a president who didn't win the popular vote, but could uh, nevertheless win the Electoral College. And I do work, and so at some, to some extent, I guess I would say, as Americans, we sort of have to accept that majority doesn't always rule, and that yeah, you know, these are the this is the system that we set up, and it may not always seem fair, but that's what it is. But when it goes too far and it's too slanted in one direction, I think I really worry about it. And when the electoral, when that electoral college approach and the equal representation in the Senate approach, you know, consistently are favoring, it'd be one thing if it shifted from one election to the next. You know, and sometimes the Democrats, maybe in 100 years, maybe the Democrats will benefit but it, from some of these things. But right now, it doesn't seem like they ever are. And then when it translates into the Supreme Court seeming to be skewed one way, you know, in other words, six out of the nine justices are pretty conservative right now. But not two, two thirds of Americans are not conservative. So it does seem like it. it I, I just would agree with what you said. It seems like in some ways the way that, Partly the way the system is set up, and then partly the way it's been implemented, partly just the luck of, I mean, Ruth Ginsburg passed away in September. If she had passed away, you know, half a year later, it would have been a different presidential administration and there would have been a different justice appointed. So to some extent, there's just sort of like random luck and that sort of thing involved. And then there's the actions of people involved. When Obama nominated Merrick Garland, as you said, um, McConnell, the leader of the Senate, said, we're not going to 
we're not going to hear anything that we refuse to do this. And then they seemed inconsistent because they, they said, he said, hey, an election's coming up in nine months. But then they seemed consistent when they when they went ahead and uh, appointed somebody to fill Ginsburg's seat. So uh, what do you think the odds are of saving the gay marriage ruling? I think they are good. They, certainly the Supreme Court can go back and overrule anything they want to overrule. And there are people on the Supreme Court who would like to overrule that for sure. I think Clarence Thomas, for example, would say, you know, I didn't agree with it. And the fact that it's now the settled law of the land, I'd like to go back and overrule it. I, I doubt that's going to occur because there were enough other judges on the conservative side of the Supreme Court who in the Dobbs case about uh, overruling Roe versus Wade seemed to go out of their way to say, don't assume that all other cases based on some of the same logic will be overruled as well. They were, for example, saying, you know, the Griswold case about access to birth control or the Lawrence case uh, from Tech, uh, the Lawrence versus Texas case or the uh, Obergefell decision about same-sex marriage, marriage equality. I think they were trying, some of them were trying to hint in their decision that they weren't necessarily going to overrule all that stuff. Same-sex marriage in particular, I think, benefits from two things. One is that there's a fallback argument for it, which is equal protection. Even if you don't believe that, as the majority of the Supreme Court might not, they don't believe that there's a, a due process right to privacy and making your own decisions and that sort of thing, which is more what Justice Kennedy really did sort of base it on. He based it on the idea of liberty and that your relationship shouldn't be devalued. But you could fall back on the idea that maybe it could be saved by an equal protection argument and say that essentially it's a form of gender discrimination. If you say that you know, a man and a woman can marry, but not two men or two women, that in a way it's a form of gender discrimination, not based entirely just on your gender, but on your gender and the gender of the person that you would choose to marry. And there have been courts in Hawaii and other, other states that have looked at it that way and said, yeah, it really is kind of a form of gender discrimination in a way, even, even without regard to the right to privacy. The other thing that I think, I hope, would help uh, with respect to the marriage equality argument is that there has been such a big shift in public attitudes towards that issue. You know, within my lifetime, that issue was considered frivolous. And it really did change remarkably, you know, within 10, 20 years, that public opinion really did shift to the point that people, I think people saw other people in their lives and one way or another at work or their family or whatever, and they realized that you sh it's just silly to discriminate on that basis and that people should be able to make their own choices. And I think there's a strong enough consensus, especially among the younger generations of people in the country, that I would hope that that's something the Supreme, a majority of the Supreme Court would not ever choose to go back on and interfere with. Plus, you'd have the problem of just the, trying to retroactively go back and cancel out a bunch of marriages and that sort of thing. So I hope they would leave that alone. Spencer Graves is asking about requiring Supreme Court justices to recuse themselves if they have a conflict of interest in a decision. I think that would be a great idea. I think um, right now the justices can recuse themselves and sometimes do, but it's really just up to them. They recuse themselves sometimes, most often it's because they worked on it. Sometimes if they're newly appointed to the Supreme Court, they will recuse themselves because they actually worked on a matter. Uh, Elena Kagan, for example, had worked in the Solicitor General's office during the Obama administration. And so when cases came up that she had involvement with, she would recuse herself. Clarence Thomas did recuse himself from the United States versus Virginia case about women being admitted to the Virginia Military Institute because he had a son who was attending the Virginia Military Institute. So when they choose to do so, they can recuse themselves or disqualify themselves from participating in a case, but there's nothing that mandates that they do so. There's no uh, particular rules about this and no particular way to review their own decisions. It's sort of left in their own hands. So a lot of people have proposed that there should be some kind of 
code of judicial ethics that would apply to the Supreme Court. And I think that would be a good idea. It's hard to decide exactly how it would be enforced, but it seems like it would be a good idea. It has received attention, certainly, in recent years because of the role that Clarence Thomas's wife has played in a lot of very conservative political movements and in connection with the January 6th protests and all that sort of a thing. Has the Biden administration, any member of it, dropped hints about what they think would be the best remedy to the disease that we you know, feel with our current Supreme Court? Thank you. It's a, it's a good question. I'd say not really. There was more, I heard more talk about this stuff sort of before the last election. There was more talk, well, well, maybe they'll think about court packing and these kinds of things. Not a lot since then. They did have a sort of a commission that met and considered possibilities. But then, as far as I could tell, nothing really came of it. And, you know, and why that is, I, I don't know. I, maybe and to some extent, it's just a recognition of the some of the difficulties I mentioned. You know, again, it's hard to amend the Constitution or to get these kinds of there's not maybe there's not a lot of point in talking about court packing if you know that you can't get senators on your side to vote for it. And some of these things, um, I would say they're they're not necessarily very popular. I think if you look at opinion polling, they're very popular with uh, some people that are more the, the core Democratic people who are the most progressive sort of people, as you would expect, are the most um most supportive of these kinds of changes. But there's a lot of other people, either just in the independent people in the middle or sort of moderate Democrats in the middle who in some ways maybe have a little bit of a contradictory position, but they would say, yeah, I don't really like the things the Supreme Court is doing. I think they have become too conservative. But if you said, would you want to see the size of the Supreme Court increased or would you want to see the Constitution amended in some way to change their power of judicial review? They might, they might also say, no, that to me sounds like too I don't like change that much. Maybe in some ways that's the lesson of it is that a lot of people are wary of change. So they're wary of change by the Supreme Court when they're overruling Roe versus Wade or marriage equality or other issues like this. Um, But on the other hand, they're wary of some kind of change that would reform the Supreme Court. And so in any event, it doesn't seem like the Biden administration is really interested in doing anything particular on this. And again, Joe Biden's a fairly moderate, liberal kind of a politician, and he's you could say maybe he's got enough problems on his hands. He's not super popular and he's got COVID and inflation and Ukraine and all these other issues to deal with. And he doesn't seem to be pushing this one to the, you know, to the top of his agenda. In the uh, earlier part of your talk, um, it seemed to me that we were making decisions on uh, adjustments in the Supreme Court built on a two-party system. It seems to me de facto now that we're getting to be a three-party system with the Republican Party divided with Trumpites, uh, uh, militias versus old-time Republicans that dealt with policy. And I wonder seriously if the Supreme Court can be fixed if we're looking at a political situation where we can't fix Congress. You know, what are we going to do with the House and the Senate to get the power to make decisions that would affect the Supreme Court? So I guess this is a political question more than a Supreme Court question, but I think they're very much tangled, and I appreciate your comments. They definitely are tangled together. So, yeah, I don't, like I said, the, the political parts of all of this are very inescapable. One of the things that's interesting, I think, is, you know, the founding fathers, when they wrote the Constitution, the framers of the Constitution, 
they want they 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 did a lot of things that were successful with that. They had a lot of ideas that were um that seemed to be right on target. They were off base on a number of things. One was they didn't really anticipate and take into account the role of political parties. George Washington, for example, did hated the idea of political parties. He thought that was the kind of factionalism that America would avoid. We're setting up this whole system with federalism and the separation of powers and the checks and balances and all of this. We'll avoid that kind of tribal or factionalism. The, the, when they originally set up the Electoral College, it was amended later, but the, the way they had it set up was we would all just vote and they didn't anticipate that there would be parties and running mates and tickets. It would just be a bunch of names out there and you'd pick the two you liked and it would be likely that they would be of very different political views. So it would be like today if in 2016, if we'd had the election and Trump would be the president and Hillary Clinton would be the vice president because she was second most popular. And that's the way they thought. And they thought those people could actually work together. And it was and now it seems so quaintly and naive. And it seems like everybody is just angry and bitter and partisan. And it is very, and, and like I said, even within the Republican Party, but even with, within the Democratic Party, right, you have these sort of blitz between the more liberal wing and the more uh, progressive wing of it. So. I do agree if we could fix all that, then probably the problems with the Supreme Court would be even even easier to fix than all that. All right. Thank you. Uh, we are out of time. Thank you, Professor Rostin, for sure. this presentation. Thanks for listening to the All Souls Forum. Stay tuned for your Jazz Afternoon with KC coming up immediately followed by The Boogie Bridge with Jason Vivoni and then the Heartland Labor Forum at 6 p.m. Before you go, please consider donating to the KKFI Fall Fund Drive to support critical programming such as the All Souls Forum on KKFI. You can call now at 1-888-931-0901 or, if you prefer, you can donate online at www.kkfi.org and click the Donate button. That's one 888 931-0901 to call in your donation or www.kkfi.org to donate online. Thanks for listening to and supporting KKFI 90.1 FM Kansas City Community Radio.